Amen. You may be seated. Welcome home. Welcome to Pitnaz. If we haven't met yet, my name is Adam. I'm the discipleship pastor. Our lead pastor, Kyle, is taking a little time off this weekend. But I uh, hope, hope you've enjoyed your, your uh, Memorial Day weekend so far. In fact, you know, I, I think originally Memorial Day was created to sort of just honor and celebrate uh, those who have given their lives in service in our military and, and have uh, fought and died for our freedom. And we do honor them and, and uh, celebrate their sacrifice for us. But we'd also like to honor today those, of you, those who are living and have served. So if you've served in any of the five branches of the military, would you just stand right quick? Do we have any? Yep, a couple over here. Thank you very much. Thank you. And, and the reason we honor you today, even though you did not actually give your life in service of our country, you were willing to. And that's why we honor you and say thank you today for your service. But um, I want to, you know, today we're starting a brand new series that's just called One. See, in the Bible, one is a significant number, right? The Bible tells us there's one church, there's one spirit, one baptism, one lots of things. And as we kick this off today, we're going to talk about the single most important number one in the Bible, and it is one God. There is one God, right? Every, that's the foundation of everything else. You have to start there when we talk about this number one in the Bible. And so I want to start this morning with a, with a statement, okay? Your God is too small. How do you feel about that? You comfortable with that statement? Your God is too small. Okay, let me clarify that a little bit. Whatever your concept of God is, it's too small, right? However big you think God is, however mighty you think God is, however great you think God is, he is still bigger, he is still greater, he is still mightier. So your concept of God is too small. I, I, years ago when I, was, uh, when I was working with teens, I did a lesson on this, uh, I think in Sunday school or something like that, and I passed out a piece of paper, and on the paper I, I had written, um, God is so big that he blank. And I passed these out and I said, I want you guys to just complete that sentence. I said, take it any direction you want. You can be serious with it. You can be funny with it. Just how, what comes to your mind? Just complete that sentence. God is so big that he blank. I don't remember all the responses, but I do remember a few of them. One said, God is so big he could play marbles with the planets. Well, that's kind of weird. One said, God is so big, he could cause the universe to disappear and reappear without us even knowing it. Whoa, that one messed with my head. I don't remember who wrote that, but they're probably teaching philosophy at some Ivy League school now or something. I don't know. I mean, God could have just done that just now. He could have just done that. Or just now. Or, or just now. I don't know. The third one that I remember was, um, of course, somebody had to go here because somebody always goes here. Uh, God is so big that he could cause hair to grow on Pastor Adam's head. <laughs> that kid, I think I kicked out of the youth group. Um, no, not really. <clears throat> the truth is, as Christians, we believe in one God, one Lord, and he is maker of heaven and earth. You see, there is one God, and he is amazing. 
That's our big takeaway today. If you don't remember anything else, then be reminded today, because I know you already know this, be reminded there is one God, and he is amazing. He is amazing. He is big. He is great. He is holy. And the power that created all the universe is literally in the breath of his mouth. That's how big and how amazing he is. And so this morning, we're going to look at a psalm, Psalm 19. If you want to find it on a Bible app or in your Bible, um, this is a psalm where David is he's thinking about all this. He's thinking about how amazing God is and how big God is and, and how God is the creator of all things. Now, we don't know exactly when in his life David wrote this. It was probably later in life, but I like to imagine him earlier in his life when he was a shepherd. And I picture David, um, you know, waking up early one morning, the sheep are starting, you know, he's out in the field, the sheep are starting to, you know, they're starting to get a little restless, maybe the birds are starting to chirp, and the sun is just starting to come up over the horizon, and um, he, he sits down in the grass for a minute, and he pulls out his laptop, and he writes this. I'm just seeing if y'all were awake. They didn't have laptops then, okay? He pulls out his scroll and his quill, I don't know, whatever they wrote with, and, and he writes this. He says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. And yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and it makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. So in other words, in this psalm, David is basically saying, you want to know how big and how great and how glorious God is? Look around you. Look around at creation. Look at what he has done. Look at what he has made. And he created all of that with the breath of his mouth. That's just amazing to me. I like to, do, I like to work on projects around the house, and I like to build things and just kind of get things done around the house. You know how much I could get done if I could just say, let that retaining wall be straight, and it was straight. Let that room be painted. And it was so, like, I could get so much done around the house. That's how God created the universe. Let there be light. Let there be a firmament in the heavens. Let there be animals on the earth. God just spoke. And all of this came into being. He mentioned specifically the sun here. He uses the sun as an example. And, you know, we're, we're finding out more and more about the sun than ever before. We have telescopes that can, you know, are more powerful than ever before. A few years ago, I think we sent a satellite that's gotten closer to the sun than we've ever been able to get before. And so we're learning a lot about it. But here are a couple quick facts about the sun. Um, it's over 100 times the size of the earth, okay? So if you can't see this, on this, you see this screen right here is a little dot that's earth, Compared to the sun. Now, I got this off the internet, so I'm sure it's true. But this is supposed to be like a, a, a to scale drawing or, or depiction of the sun. 
A hundred earths can fit inside the sun. It's huge. We know that the surface temperature of the sun, not even the core, but just the surface temperature of the sun is over 10,000 degrees. I'd hate to be the guy who had to go measure that. Ten, over 10,000 degrees. Now, I was trying to figure out how could we wrap our minds around that, and I couldn't really think of anything, but I did find this other picture. This is an actual picture of the sun, and that's a solar flare over here. The sun is big, and it is fierce. And yet David writes in this psalm, God, God pitched a tent for the sun. As big as the sun is, as fierce as the sun is, God is so big. He, God just pitched a tent for the sun. God just threw up a tent for the sun. In fact, he uses this, this phrase, it's like a bridegroom coming out of its chamber. There was this, there was this thing called a, the groom's pavilion. And at a wedding, this, this groom's pavilion, it was this covered place. It was kind of like a tent. And the groom would wait there for the bride. And the idea, the purpose behind this was for the groom to make a grand entrance into the wedding ceremony. Now today, it's the bride, right? I remember going on 24 years ago standing at the front of a little church sanctuary in Mountain Grove, Missouri, and I'm standing up there, and the doors that were back in that corner open up, and everybody stands up and standing back there. Sorry, I'm not pointing to you, Gerald. <laughs> pointing, standing back there was the most beautiful bride in the history of brides. Some of you husbands may disagree, but sorry. And she made her grand entrance into our wedding ceremony. Well, in this culture, in this day, in David's day, it was the groom that got the grand entrance. And he would come out of this tent and he would make his entrance. And so David is using that as a metaphor here. And he's saying, he's saying it's like God, God put up this tent for the sun. At night, the sun sort of waits in its tent, and then at sunrise, it makes its grand entrance into the, onto the earth. It's amazing. It's amazing what God has done, what God has created. But remember this. David's point here isn't so that we would say and look at how great the sun is. His point is for us to see how great God is. It's to say how great and amazing God is because the sun is just one of millions and millions of examples in creation all around us of how great and how amazing God is. He is the creator of heaven and earth. Now, as fascinating as this stuff is to me, anybody else, how many are like really fascinated by creation, like studying, like it's like, yeah, I mean, it's, I, I love it. We had it over spring break, we went to the Noah's Ark replica and creation museum in Kentucky. If you ever have a chance to go there, you should, you should go. It's really cool. But it seems to me that we should have a response to all of this that's a little bit more than just, wow, that's really interesting. Right? I mean, we should, our response should be a little deeper than that. 
I mean, it's one thing to, to marvel at all of this information, and it, it's one thing to say eight, you know, a couple amens in a church building on a Sunday morning, but shouldn't our response to the creator of the universe be a little bit deeper than just, wow, that's really interesting? Well, let's see what David's response was. Let's, let's continue through the psalm, starting in verse 7. David goes on and he says, The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. So think about this for a minute. David is thinking about creation and about the amazing God who created all of it. And the first place his mind goes when he's thinking about all of that are God's commands and God's decrees and what God wants from us and how he wants us to live. Now, at first, when you first read that, it kind of feels like he took a hard left turn, doesn't it? Like, What does that have to do with the sun and creation and all of that? But when you think about it, that actually makes sense. Because if God is that big, if God can can put the sun in the sky, if God can pitch a tent for the sun, if he can breathe the universe into existence, if he is that big and that great, then doesn't it make sense that we would want to know, that we would want to live the life that he created us to live? I mean, it makes sense. We should want to dive into his word. We should want to know his, as David, he listed all, you know, his commands, his decrees. How does he, who are the people he wants us to be? We should want to dive into that. If we truly believe that he is big enough to breathe the universe into existence, we should want to know, well, how does this amazing God Want me to live. I want to be the God, I want to be the person that God created me to be. That's what David is saying here. When I consider the work of his hands, when I consider his creation, I just want to be the person that he created me to be. Because, see, here's the thing. Creation, creation shows us that there is a God. Creation shows us that God is real. There's a verse in Romans that says, you know, his, his, uh, you know, God can be seen in what he has created, so nobody has an excuse, right? Nobody has an excuse to believe or th- that God isn't real. That's what, that's what the Bible says, because you can look around at creation and you can see that God is real. But it's his word that shows us how he wants us to live, that shows us why we're here, that shows us what he is like. Most of all, it's his word that tells us how much this amazing creator loves us. And make no mistake, whoever you are, whatever failures you have in your past, whatever your present looks like, You are deeply loved 
by this same amazing creator who breathed the universe into existence. We don't see all of that through creation, but we see it through his word. And so his creation, as we look around, ought to spur us on, ought to to inspire us to dig into his word, to read of his commands and decrees and all those things that David listed so that we can pray and we can know, God, here's the person you created me to be and that's who I want to be. Creation should inspire us to dig into his word. So don't just marvel at God's creation and then go on your way. Marvel at, his, marvel at his creation and say, I want to be the person that this amazing God created me to be. Well, that leads us right into David's next response. As he continues in verse 12, he says, But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Now he's, he's praying, God, forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and innocent of great transgression. All right, so here's what David is praying. If I could sort of sum up that verse. I think what David is basically praying there is, God, creator of the universe, would you make me holy? God, make me holy. That's what he's praying here. He says, he says forgive my hidden faults. In other words, forgive me for those things I, I do that I shouldn't do that I don't even realize I'm doing. Forgive me for those things. But then when it comes to, I know this is wrong and I'm going to do it anyway, when it comes to willful sins, he says, keep me from those. You see, he takes it up a notch. He doesn't say, forgive me for those things when I know it's wrong and, and I'm going to do it anyway. He doesn't just say, forgive me for those things. He says, keep me from those things. Keep me from them. Don't let those things enslave me. There, there, we need to know there's a theology out there that says, you know, I sin every day in thought, word, and deed. And maybe some of you are sitting here or watching online, and that's kind of that's what you've always believed. I sin every day in thought, word, and deed. But we, here's something we need to understand. John Wesley, who's one of our, he's kind of one of the theological forefathers for our denominations and other denominations like us. John Wesley defines sin this way. And th- he didn't just come up with this in his head. This is what he saw in Scripture. He defines sin as a willful transgression of a known law of God. In other words, I know this is wrong, and I'm going to do it anyway. So if, if sin is defined as any imperfection, anything that falls short of God's perfection, then I guess it's true that we would sin every day in thought, word, and deed. But this is different. This is a narrower definition of sin. In fact, let me illustrate it this way. Um, about a year and a half ago, we bought three acres outside of Gerard, and thank you, Gerard people, for not applauding back there, but um, I thought you might. No, my kids are not going to transfer from Frontenac to Gerard. But about a year and a half ago, we bought, we bought a few acres uh, outside of Gerard, and um, our neighbor has some fruit trees on his property. So let's, for, this didn't happen, but let's just pretend that I thought when we bought the property that his apple tree was on, was on our property line. 
And let's say that I went over there and with a big basket or something, and I just started picking apples off the tree so my wife could make some of her delicious apple crisp that she used to reel me in the first time she cooked for me. And let's say then my neighbor sees me and he comes out yelling and screaming, get your hands off my apples, you're stealing my apples, you're a thief, that's my apple tree. Now, should I apologize to him for that? Yes, I should. Should I try to make restitution, maybe offer him some of that delicious apple crisp? Yes, I should. Is that a sin that I need to ask God's forgiveness for? Well, according to Wesley's definition, no, not necessarily. Because I didn't realize in this case, I didn't realize the tree was on his property. I thought I wasn't, this wasn't something where I know this is wrong and I'm going to go do it anyway. Now, if I knew that the apple tree was on his property and I went, put on some dark clothes at night and went and stole apples knowing they weren't mine, well, now that's a different story, right? That's stealing. One of the hallmarks of our theology as Nazarenes is that I know this is wrong and I'm going to do it anyway does not have to be, is not destined to be part of our everyday lives. That's why David in this song, in response to God the Creator, Says, God, forgive me for those things that I don't even realize I'm doing wrong, but keep me from those willful sins. Keep me from, I know this is wrong and I'm going to do it anyway. Don't let me be enslaved by those sins. We can have victory over that. And that's what David is praying for here. Keep me from those sins. Because here's the thing. That same God who set the sun in the sky, that same God who said, let there be, and it was, that same God says, be holy as I am holy. Be holy as I am holy. And so in response to this amazing God who created the heavens and the earth, David essentially prays here, God, make me holy. Make me holy in your sight. Forgive me and keep me from those willful sins. Well, finally, David ends this psalm this way. He says, may these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. God, may I be pleasing in your sight. You see, all three of these things, all three of these responses that David has, they're all related to each other. And this statement here, this is basically a statement of worship. God, may I be pleasing in your sight. God, help me to bring joy to your heart. You realize that's what worship is? Worship is not about bringing joy to my heart. It's not about you bringing joy to your heart. It's about worship, true worship is about bringing joy to God's heart. And that's why when we, when we say things like, I can't worship God 
to this style of music, or I can't worship God because it's too hot in here, or it's too cold in here, or the seat isn't comfortable. I can't worship God because the person next to me can't hold a tune in a bucket. Don't look at anybody. Don't look at anybody. When we make statements like that, what we're saying is, I can't bring joy to God's heart. I can't be pleasing to Him. I can't give Him the thanks and honor that He deserves unless everything around me is to my liking. And then we have ceased to make worship about Him and we have then made worship about us, which isn't really worship at all. Worship is about bringing joy to God's heart. That also answers the question, how can I worship God when I don't have joy in my heart, when I don't feel like worshiping him, when I'm just kind of in a bad place mentally or emotionally or even physically, how can I worship God then? Well, because it's not about joy in your heart, it's about bringing joy to his it's about being pleasing to him. And I don't know about you, but what I found in my life is that when at those times when I don't feel like praising God or worshiping God, and I choose to anyway because he deserves it, what I have often found is that in those moments, joy begins to fill my heart. But that's not the place you start. The place you start, true worship starts with saying, I just want to be pleasing to God. I want to, give, I want to bring pleasure to his heart and joy to his heart. That's what worship is. And that's what David is praying here in response to this amazing God who is our creator. He says, God, I worship you. I want to be pleasing to you. See, we need to realize that worship Worship doesn't just happen in this room on Sunday mornings or watching on the screen from home. That's, that's, not, that's not the only time that worship happens. This is just one way that we worship God. But you see, worship happens when you leave here. It happens when you go back home. It happens when you turn off your computer. It happens when, uh, when you go to work, when you go to class, when you go to the grocery store. Worship happens there too. Worship happens when somebody hurts you and you choose to forgive them. That's an act of worship. Worship happens when, when every bone in your body wants to go off on somebody, but you choose restraint. Worship happens when you see someone in need and you have the resources and the opportunity to help, and you do. That's an act of worship. Worship happens when you have to choose between the easy, wrong thing and the, the difficult, right thing, and you choose the difficult, right thing. That is an act of worship. Worship happens when you have no idea how your situation is going to turn out, but you choose to trust him anyway. That is an act of worship. That brings joy to God's heart. Living a life that is pleasing to God isn't just about coming to church. It's about living your everyday life in a way that brings joy to him. That is pleasing to him. That is worship. And when you think about it, why, 
when we consider God as our creator, why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't that become our greatest motivation in life? When we consider the works of his hands, when we consider that he breathed the universe into existence, when we consider that he is the, he is the one great, amazing God over all creation, when we consider that, why would we not say, okay, then my number one motivation in life is going to be to bring joy and pleasure to his heart. Because here's the thing. The same God who breathed the universe into existence created you. And he didn't just say, let there be a person. Let there be this person. No, David says in another psalm, he's praying to God and he says, you knit me together in my mother's womb. When I think of that, when I think of that phrase, you knit me together, I think of my grandma who used to, she would always knit, I don't know if, that's, if this was knitting, but she would always make these afghans, right, these blankets, and I, I still have a couple of them, and they're literally years old, you know, that she made when I was a kid, and they've been through the washer and dryer, and they've been used a million times, and they're, they're still like new. You know Why? Because when she knit those together, she did it with great care. Because she deeply loved the person she was making it for. And so when David says, when God's word says that God knit you together in your mother's womb, God didn't just carelessly say, eh, He took great care in creating you because he loves you. And if this great creator of the universe also took great care in creating me and loves me, then how can I respond to him in any other way than what David has responded in this psalm? And so let me give you this morning three prayers to pray to God as creator. If you want to take a, take a picture of this, maybe, maybe what, if, what, if, what if we started every day just with, this, with these three prayers? This, these are David's three prayers to God as creator. God, give me a hunger for your word. God, when you wake up in the morning, God, give me a hunger for your word today. God, make me holy as you are holy Forgive me for the things I've done. Forgive me for the things that I don't even realize I've done. But God, keep me from, I know this is wrong and I'm going to do it anyway. Make me holy. And then God, ultimately, may my life bring joy to your heart. God, when I go to work today, when I go to class today, when I go to the grocery store today, when I'm driving down the road and that idiot cuts me off, Come on, I know that hits, that hits a nerve with a lot of us. Well, that umpire makes a really bad call in my kid's game. As I go about my day today, God, 
Help me to bring joy to your heart. Because you are the one true God. And you are amazing. And you are the maker of heaven and earth. And so my number one priority, God, is to just bring joy and pleasure to your heart. Can you make that your prayer today? I'm going to ask everybody to stand as, as our band comes. I want to invite you today, just everybody bow your heads, close your eyes. <coughs> um, take a minute and see if you can think of, of an area of your life where you have, where you know God has really changed you in some way. Maybe something he has set you free from. Maybe something that used to be a real struggle or weakness that's, that no longer is. Maybe an area of your life where you used to struggle to trust him, but now you do. Some work that he has done, some transformation that he's done in your life. Take a minute and think of, see if you can think of one thing. If you can't, that's fine. Take a minute and just give him thanks for bringing about that transformation in your life. And now let's go to the other end of the spectrum. I don't care how long you've been serving Jesus, none of us are a finished work. All of us have areas where we need to improve and be more like Jesus. So now take a minute and what's, what's one area of your life where you know you need to be more like Jesus. You want to be more like Jesus. Take a minute and think of one area like that. And now hear me when I say this. The same God who brought transformation to your life in that first area is the same God who breathed the universe into existence, is the same God who sent his son to die on the cross for your sins because he loves you so much, and he is the same God who can bring about transformation in this second area of your life that I asked you to think about. The God who transformed you here is the same God who can transform you over here. So what if right now you just surrendered that area to God? Maybe you have, maybe you've prayed that prayer a hundred times, don't stop. What if you just prayed again today? God, I surrender this area of my life to you. I want to be more like Jesus. I want to be holy. I want to be the person you created me to be in every way. So God, would you just do whatever you wanna do in my heart, in my mind, in my life today? As we sing, if you'd like to come pray at the altar in any way for about anything, maybe something in this message, maybe God's just kind of touched your heart in some way, then come as we sing.